2: Well, Hi, hey everyone. Welcome back to Faith and other Oddities. the show where Emily and I read the Bible and discuss it um it's been a little while since Emily and i have well it's been two weeks really since Emily and I have been recording um but that but feels did, like a long time for us it feels like forever this is that yeah, last week was the first time we didn't have a a whole episode planned and ready to go um but we did get to spend. Thanksgiving together, um, which was kind of cool. Had
0: a um, house full at the new place.
2: Yeah. The <laughs> house was very full of, of family. So that was good. Um, but yeah, so last week um we did or I did rather, I asked you if you wanted to join. You said you were just wiped out from hosting holidays. You know, we yeah. just kind of did a uh I just kind of got on kind of shared some thoughts because I realized as we were wrapping I was gonna I was going to just do, Hey, everyone, hope everyone had a safe and happy Thanksgiving, but it also happened to be the first night of Hanukkah. And I wanted to uh, kind of do a follow-up on that. Cause I did get some comments. And first off, I wanted to correct a couple things I said, because I was <laughs> going largely off of an article I had read uh, a few years back. Um, so I was just kind of doing a lot of it from memory. Um, and, I wanted to, to correct, number one, I said the first day of Hanukkah. It was supposed <laughs> to be the first night of Hanukkah. Um, and, you know, minor thing, but it kind of bothered me when I listened back through it the next day. And then the other thing is that the being put in as the, being interpreted as the Festival of Lights, that was something I guess I had mixed up in some in other early documents. It's referred to as Festival of Lights, but not in any of the biblical interpretations. So I wanted to correct myself on that. Um, because you know if you make make a mistake and you get some correction you should you should own it so yeah. um want to throw that out there and just also we had some i was actually kind of shocked we probably have gotten more direct feedback on that episode <laughs> than we have on a lot of others which is really funny to me um, because it's so out of character for what we do but i did want to uh, address a couple things there was there were, were a few different comments i'm not going to necessarily be Addressing any of them directly, not going to really be reading any of them, but um, we did have uh, some people mention that you know one of one of them is a feast, one of them is is a fast, which I get that that they're two different types of of Mm -hmm. holy days. Um, My main point was that they were things that were not prescribed in Torah; they were things that were added to the Mm -hmm. feast calendars later, and Mm -hmm. it is a minor feast, right? um you know it's it's not a big one but uh my main point was just they weren't prescribed in torah and here you have jesus going to one and you have him avoiding another um so the and again i don't know exactly how it was celebrated at the time but i would assume because it was they did have the temple i assume there would have been some kind of feast at the temple because it was about the the mm-hmm. dedication mm-hmm. so um we do have jesus attending and know it and one of the some pushback I got was it doesn't say he was celebrating the feast. It's a man made tradition, uh, and that he that when he was there, that he was threatened to get threatened to be stoned. So there's no way we can say that he was celebrating it. It also doesn't say he wasn't celebrating it, but he definitely was in attendance because it's likely it was at the temple that mm-hmm. was being celebrated the the dedication of the temple. Right because Solomon's portico or porch or however you want to translate that word at the temple where the celebration was. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, I don't know all the details of how it was celebrated. You know, I, I didn't get a lot of time to do a a ton of research this week. I had a long work week. Um, but I do want to point out, it's really interesting in, ah, there you go. Well, I, I, I'd also wanted to point out, um, in Matthew, or not Matthew, John 10, when you get to 22 and 23, those verses that talk about the festival, if you back up and look at um, what happens before that, again, context of is everything. Scripture interprets Scripture and gives you context and keys to what's going on. Uh, when you get there, um, if you go back to what happened beforehand, you have Jesus doing a couple things. One, he heals a blind man, which that episode is i say episode that retelling that story is kind of funny in and of itself and it is you have this blind man who is blind from birth and Jesus heals him and then the Pharisees come and interrogate him and interrogate him who is this man what do you know about him and the guy says i was blind now i can see and that basically is his whole answer and he just sticks with that i know i was blind I know I can see. Beyond that, you're just asking the same question, and I'm not giving you any more information than I don't have. Um, they even get to try to get his parents involved, and the parents are like, hey, he's old enough to, to answer for himself. If that's what he said, that's his answer, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, then, then you have Jesus uh, in chapter, I believe, I can't remember exactly where it is. I, I read this during the week, you know, I got to look at the scriptures a little bit. <laughs> But the uh, then you have Jesus talking about being the light of the world, mm-hmm. and then he goes to the temple, the dedication, and whether or not he was threatened by the Jews. Uh, I, actually, I went and uh, chatted with Craig uh, the other day, Craig, Craig Conaway from Church Wounds. Um, we we went out and had had some beers, and the. Uh, We were talking about this, and it's like, whether or not he got someone threatened to stone him in the process of the evening has no indication about whether or not he was there to celebrate. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've seen a night out at the bar (laughs) turn south pretty quick. Not not comparing the temple to a bar, but I've seen people go out to celebrate, and things tend to go south in public places when people have really big beefs with each Mm other. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, that's not really an indication about whether or not he was celebrating. But what we can look at here is he's, he's healed a blind person. He says he's the light of the world. And who's the only person who can heal blind people in the rabbinic tradition? is the Messiah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then you have him saying he's the light of the world. He goes into a festival where light is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, the, the Jews who are there go... And also, if you think about what they're celebrating, they're celebrating the Maccabean Revolt. They're they're celebrating this, you know, deliverance of the Jews from oppression. And so you kind of have this, hey, you know, the stage is set. We're talking about the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And you have the Jews going, so are you the Messiah? And Jesus going, well, if you'd have been paying attention, you would know already that I'm him. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's really this great, uh, if you break it down, you see he's subverting the messianic expectations mm-hmm. of the the Jewish people and saying, "Hey, we're you're here to you want to celebrate the Messiah? He's me, but things aren't going to happen the way you expect." And then and then they threaten to stone him. And then Jesus, of course, his great you know facetious sense of humor. I've done so many good things. Which one of those are you stoning me for? <laughs> Uh, and, you know, because it's just after this litany of miracles that this happens. Uh, so it's it's pretty cool.
0: Well, and that's one of the things I do love about when Jesus is dealing with the crowds, like they will come at him with an accusation. And then he has this this almost sarcastic kind of backhanded way of saying, wait a minute, what are you doing? How are you thinking about this? And putting them in their place without being terribly rude, but definitely not softening his stance. I mean, it's, it's this mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. backhanded question. And, uh, I think, you know, we kind of grew up with that in our, in our family that dad would do that to us a lot. You know, what are you thinking? How did you get there? And you sure, know, you would sure. have this, you know, airtight argument in your head until he asked that one question that would completely throw you off balance and you had to mm-hmm. rethink everything. And so, you know, I see that a lot. in uh Jesus speeches with the Pharisees is like you guys aren't getting it, and
2: you know and even even with the disciples you see mm-hmm. him doing stuff like that oh
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that, that's one of the fun things with Mark. you pick up a lot on that in the book of mark it's it's right there, but you know it, as far as uh, the feast and the festivals, I think one of the things we need to remember about them and you, you did bring this up on that episode that it's not about the shoulds and the odds mm-hmm, about right. whether or not we should we should uh be celebrating them as Christians, but I think we need to be paying attention to what they teach us. And right. so if we just take some time to think about them, to consider what they mean, it, there's so much to be learned in the feast. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, feast and festivals, uh, holidays in general, don't get celebrated a lot at my house. That's just kind of not my gig. And so whenever you do have something that's meaningful beyond just, hey, this is fun, I, I think that we need to take that time to be a learning opportunity. So mm-hmm. we gotta remember all of these feasts and festivals that were commanded in the Torah anyway, were designed to teach us something about the Messiah. And the fact that Hanukkah has something about it that that relates that doesn't it, it doesn't contradict what was in the Torah. And people in Judaism, just like Christianity, were allowed to do things that didn't contradict what was in the Torah. So, right. you know, it, it's not necessarily an evil thing to do. It's not something that is out of line. And your question is really good as far as when did these uh, blessings begin to be be prayed at Hanukkah. Uh, you know, because that does bring up some really interesting questions of canonicity, which I have yet. I did some looking. I didn't have a lot of time, like you said, to go in and research. It would be really interesting to know when were those prayers specifically added to Mm -hmm. the form and function of of Hanukkah. And, uh, you know, I, I can't answer that. And what I found on other holidays, not necessarily Hanukkah, a lot of times we don't know how they were celebrated during that first century. And that right. the form really wasn't solidified until we had the Talmud about 150, 170 years uh, later. We started seeing things uh, begin to be kind of formulated of, this is how you do it. So, um, and we're going to talk some about that specifically with the Passover when we get into the Gospels at some point, because yeah, uh, yeah, Mark we, answers we, some questions. Yeah,
2: and, and we'll probably come back to this in a little more depth when we get to the Gospels. And, and one, one of the other questions, and I just wanted to throw this one out there, it was about like making a big deal about celebrating Hanukkah and why so many Christians make a, a big deal about celebrating Hanukkah but not other festivals. And I I think the, be- the the best I can come up with with that is just that Hanukkah is so much in the public eye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, and, and that's actually kind of a, a thing that came from the United States, because Christmas is such a big deal in the U.S. that the Hanukkah was kind of the closest winter festival. Mm-hmm. And so it actually kind of became a, res- it's not really a response to Christmas per se, but it kind of got elevated because it is that winter festival that people can do uh, mm-hmm. around that time. And that's, that was actually a, a video I watched with girls about, like, where does Hanukkah come from? That's, <laughs> there was a guy talking about how things kind of got added on. But I do think it's a good idea anytime we have, uh, especially, you know, we have we, Christmas becoming very commercialized. We have uh, basically any holiday becoming very commercialized. It's, I think it's important if it's something that's being in the public eye, getting, getting scrutinized, there's something we can use to teach from it. Mm-hmm. Let's use it as a teaching opportunity.
0: Absolutely. And
2: again, it's not a should or ought, but I think it's an opportunity. And I know that you know, growing up, you know, you'd hear you'd have commercials on TV, "Merry Christmas" and "Happy Hanukkah," and you're mm-hmm. like, yes you we would ask mom, "What's Hanukkah?" oh uh, it's it's some Jewish thing. It's something that the Jewish has people candles. Do. <laughs> we didn't even get that information. Yeah, it's just it's just it's something that Jewish people do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anyone ever referred to it as "quote Jewish Christmas" as some people tend to refer to it which it's obviously wrong. not. Totally wrong. <laughs> um but we just didn't have the information and we do get an opportunity to share with our girls that you know there's there's a, there's an important story that happened here. Um
0: Well, so. and I I think it does it kind of it, it can be an introduction to the other feast if you're willing to put in the extra effort and uh, somebody brought up the fact that um uh, you know you don't see a lot of Christians uh celebrating Purim.
2: Uh I would That was Greg and I, yeah, would I did love, like that.
0: <laughs> I would love to see some of my uh, uh Southern Baptist friends join me in a celebration, but
2: anyway. <laughs> that's if, And if you know anything about the Feast of Purim, there's a That's
0: hilarious.
2: It's uh <laughs> there, there's alcohol involved. Mm-hmm. Um you should you should go look it up. But um but anyway, I just want uh, yeah, I I I don't want to take up too much time with that. I know we're 15 minutes into to wrapping up Hanukkah, but um Post Hanukkah wrap up. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to to kind of clarify some things and you know bring bring some light to some things that I might have missed as you know not being the greatest presenter in the world and you know also it was a little weird flying solo last week. I usually <laughs> have usually have you to play off of, um, but yeah. So that's that's that. And again, when we get into our uh, we're planning after Kings, so we're planning to go into the Gospels. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think will be really great. Uh, I mean, to to have all those stories, quote unquote, fresh in our minds, even though it'll be <laughs> probably <laughs> a year or so removed from the beginning. But having gone through the study of the kings in Samuel, uh, to just go go at this the the mm-hmm. gospel with that kind of coming from that trajectory and mm-hmm. seeing what we can get out of it and seeing those things like the messianic messages. And things like being at the feast of, Dedica- feast of dedication. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, that being said, let's get back to let's get back to Second Samuel.
0: Yeah, we're still in chapter nineteen. We're going to be here for a while. We got a lot of uh, things that are happening, a lot of throwbacks to previous stories. I, it it was one of those chapters that I just kept finding myself going. Okay, if I can get through the next three verses, I will take a break in prep, but then Mm -hmm. you get through the next three verses and it's like, well, I better get through the next three because I don't want to forget that point that ties in with this point. So very rich chapter.
2: Yeah. Well, um, before we get too far into that, uh, catch us up because it has been two weeks and, uh, since, yeah. since we've had anything. So catch us up to where we are.
0: Okay. So Joab has killed Absalom, despite the fact that David had told him not to. We've mm-hmm. had the two runners come back with uh, the news that, uh, that Absalom has been killed. David has gone into mourning. He is, uh, up on the rooftop. He, or sorry, in the room above the roof, uh, above the gate. Uh, he is, um, just completely distraught over the fact that his son has died rather than the fact that his, his army won, that he is still King of Israel. He's still King of Jerusalem because his army won. And so, um, he had locked himself away. The people, instead of celebrating this great victory, instead of coming into the city, parading through being, you know, uh, receiving the acclaim and the the honor of the king for fighting on his behalf they they just kind of slink away home like they had lost and so their 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 hearts and their their spirits just were crushed and uh you know when the king removes himself from the troops that's a big deal i think we forget that at this point in time this isn't like the president of the united states ordering the military around or dictating what the army or Marines and Navy should do in our day where the the president doesn't fight with them. A king fought with his army. And remember at the beginning of this, David had said, you know, Hey, I'm going to go out with you. And it was his generals who said, no, don't do that because if you're dead, then everything's lost. There's no point in fighting. And so we also had some speculation about David's age and his ability at this point and whether he was even an effective warrior at this point. Mm -hmm. But, now, once David had done this, we, we talked about how Joab had been informed that, hey, this is what David's doing. And Joab is the guy who goes to David and says, basically, get your act together. Because if you don't get your act together, you aren't going to have a single soldier left. I'm going to take them all. I'm going to do my own coup, my own revolt. And so you need to be paying attention to your, to your troops. And this is a conversation Mm -hmm. that you can only have, I mean, particularly with a king, but you can only have this kind of in-your-face kind of you're-being-a-fool kind of conversation with someone you're close to. And basically every military victory that David had ever experienced as he began running from Saul and possibly even before, we don't know how far back uh, Joab Joab had been with David because he was David's nephew, but Joab, Joab had been by David's side and so, um, the fact that Joab could make this threat to David and basically say, "Hey, I'm going to take the army with me, and we're going to leave you," there's some teeth to that. And mm-hmm. you know, David may have been out of touch with his with his soldiers, but he's not stupid. Uh, he had occupied a similar similar situation with Saul's army because when David fled, and some of Saul's army had come with him he understood the power of a great general to inspire the troops to to go against a king, to desert a king. And so this leads us to the question, does David listen to Joab because David knows it's the right thing to do, or is he scared that Joab will actually be able to carry out his threat? So we're going to pick up in verse 8 and finish off that little section it says then the king arose and took his seat in the gate and the people were all were all told behold the king is sitting in the gate and all the people came before the king so david obeys joab he does the bare minimum now notice joab had said that david was supposed to speak to the troops david doesn't speak he just appears he he puts in a good appearance and so he he sits very passively, as Alter makes note of. And, you know, a king can bend to the will of a general only so far. But David's public appearance is enough. He's reclaimed his proper place. Uh, you know, he's there at the gate where he should have been when the troops returned. And the people respond by presenting themselves to the king at the gate. And so the, the joy of the victory has been extinguished, but there is some return to normalcy and that's what uh, how gordon phrases it that this is there's kind of a relief we can sigh the kingdom's back in proper order now this is the way things are supposed to be now the last phrase in verse 8 actually goes with verse 9 this is one of those times when it's a bad division of the verses and You know, unfortunately, they're so set in stone at this point. Nobody's going to change it and fix it. But that last phrase is now Israel had fled every man to his own home. Now, what the writer's doing here, he's presenting that contrast. David's troops had come to present themselves at the gate. Israel is referring to Absalom's troops. They had run, they had retreated. So we're we're getting that picture of the the two sides of the army and what's happening uh, right there. So those with loyalty with, to the true king can now come before him boldly and with assurance and find comfort in his presence. And those who betrayed him, you know, they're hiding in fear, which, you know, is a pretty smart thing to do.
2: Well, I mean, if, if you think about it, you've got news that the king's army have killed his own son for betrayal. How much worse is it going to be for those who, are, who followed him? Precisely. They're not even family, right? Well,
0: and and, well, some were and some weren't because we got to remember a lot of Joe. Sorry, a lot of Absalom's army were from the tribe of Judah.
2: Well, that's true. That's true. I. But but yeah, I mean, but just thinking about it, like it wasn't even you know, it's David's David's Mm -hmm. army kills his own son. How much more is this kind of this wrath? That's a nephew or two. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So then there's there's kind of a point to be made about that later. um, Mm -hmm. I think. Yes. But go ahead.
0: Well, and, and that's really what the setup is. We we need to understand and we need to not downplay how big this revolt is. In this time and culture, if you defy the king, the the first and most appropriate thing to do is to kill that person. I mean, you, you don't let somebody rise up against a king without trying to, to uh, set these boundaries because you don't, you don't allow rebellion to even begin to fester, because at mm-hmm. this point, being king is not a matter of election. it's who kills everybody else. And so right,
2: right. Well, and excuse me, the uh, the other thing is you know people people want to talk about how terrible it is that you would end uprisings like this by killing people, but if you think about it, that's actually for this if you're the king and for the sake of your kingdom. That's actually probably the most humane thing you can do because mm-hmm. to let someone else continue in this battle, you're subjecting the nation to a civil war that's going to drain resources and, and injure and kill people. Mm-hmm. And yes. it's probably going to take a long time to get settled.
0: Well, and you know and just remember the living conditions of that day. Not only are you draining resources, you get shot by an arrow and it hits you someplace it's not vital, it's not in the heart or lungs or anything. Mm-hmm. That still can kill you. Why? Because you don't have Neosporin. I right. mean, you know, right. it's, it's really that simple. This is a deadly time. So you put down deadly threats very quickly. And it is an act of mercy if you look at the entire context. So, verse 9. And all the people were arguing throughout the tribes of Israel, saying, "The king delivered us from the hand of the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom." Now, altar has a little different translation here. It's not much different. Uh, the ESV says they're arguing. Altar says they're deliberating, which makes a lot of sense because I mean, there's no real argument presented here. There, there's not any kind of you know, this is just facts at this point. Mm-hmm. There, there's nothing that nobody's not aware of. Um, so, you know, you could kind of look at it this way. They're, they're, they're weighing the pros and cons. And they're saying basically on one hand, David has saved us from all our enemies. He's defeated the Philistines. But when his own son rose up, then he ran away. So can we still trust him to be a good king? He's the logical choice. But is this still a man that we can put our faith in? And, you know, this is a real consideration for the nation because you need that powerful king. You need someone who can put down uprisings very quickly. And the fact that he didn't put down this uprising against Absalom, you know, we don't know how long that lasted. And I looked at different traditions and some say it was just a month. Some say it was up to a year. And, you know, we, we tend to forget because we are reading the Bible. This is not just a religious issue. This is not just, oh, well, God chose David, so it must be the person we should support. This is a political issue. And mm-hmm. people have are very quick to abandon religious mandates in political situations if they think that one political leader is better than another political leader. We still, oh sorry, political leader, not reader. Uh, sure. We still do that today. I mean- we will say, oh, yes, we absolutely uphold these Christian ideals, but the minute another candidate comes along and says, hey, I'm going to lower taxes on you know, your tax bracket, or I'm going to do different things for people in your certain demographic, then we're going to support that person. And you, can, you watch these, these ongoing debates, and I don't think you have to be uh, particularly astute to, to know that uh, we're very quick to claim that one candidate is God's chosen one over another. And it tends to be the person that most is the most beneficial for us. And usually it's financially beneficial. It's not even life and death beneficial. And for these people, it's life and death beneficial. That's what we're, we're looking at. This is not just, you know, let's lower your taxes. This is, can you survive? So I think, um, Alter's translation kind of brings us back to a place where we can identify with it. It kind of tones it down, so we're not saying, "Oh, well, I'm not going to be somebody who would argue." But I think we can all say that during political times, we do deliberate. We we do take time to weigh the pros and the cons. And so this isn't just a rebellious people trying to figure out whether or not they should accept the Messiah. This is a a real group of people, a real um country facing real issues, trying to figure out what's the best for their nation. And, you know, I think we've all been there. And I think these are smart questions to ask. So verse 10, but Absalom, whom we anointed over us is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So, um, you know, David had all the good points. David had done, done good things in the past. The only person he seemed to be afraid of was Absalom, but Absalom's dead, so why not bring David back? And this, this just makes sense. And reestablishing uh, David as a king is the logical choice for a nation without a king. You are in trouble if you don't have a king. That's basically what it boils down to. You need a strong leader. But the people were hesitant because David had failed. And fled before uh, Absalom's. And so they were, you know, they aren't worried about David's political or or religious status. They're worried about whether or not they're going to be able to survive with him as a king. Was he too weak now in not just their own eyes, but in the eyes of other nations? Because remember, before this, David was getting honor and gifts from, from foreign nations just for being the king of Israel. So verse 11. And David sent this message to Zadok and Abathar, the priest, to say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all of Israel has come to the king? Verse 12, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why should you be the last to bring back the king? So surface level, basically Judah has the most reason to be reluctant for bringing David back because both sides of the family were involved in this problem. Uh mm-hmm. Joab was David's general, that's David's nephew, but Amasa, Absalom's general, was also David's nephew and Joab and Absalom's cousin. So we talked about this before, this is a giant family feud. This is a feud among the tribe of Judah specifically that then spilled over into all of Israel because it was the royal family. David's from Judah. David was the uh, was first accepted as king by Judah, if you go back to 2 Samuel two. And the rest of Israel only accepted David after Ishbosheth. Saul's son had been killed. And you know, Abner, Saul's general, uh, we talked about how he was the counterpart to to Joab for for Saul he had negotiated with the tribal elders to make sure that the rest of Israel would accept David as King. So basically what we have in these verses, we're seeing a reversal um, where it's Israel who accepts David first. Yes. We have that connecting element of a King's son being killed. This time it's David's son killed instead of Saul's son. Mm -hmm. Judah has, Judah is the one that has to be convinced, not the rest of Israel. So, that's a complete reversal of what happened. And the negotiator, the ones who negotiate with the tribal leaders are the priest rather than a general. And so almost every commentator agrees, whether they see that connection or not, they agree that this demonstrates that David is coming back, not just as the king of Judah, but he's also the king over all of Israel. So it's not Judah first and the rest of Israel by default. Now it's Israel as a whole and it will encompass Judah too. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of, it has the potential to, to remove that schism that we've already seen forming within uh, Israel. Cause remember, if we go back and read the stories back in as far back as judges, we start to see, you know, the armies of Israel and of Judah, there's already that, that, separation between the two. And to be just the the king over Judah would have been a real possibility. I remember David had even removed his uh, capital to Jerusalem so that it would be between that that dividing line between Judah and Benjamin, uh, the two tribes, so that there could be some kind of unity. And I kind of wonder how well this kind of parallels what we see in Acts, where you know Jesus comes first to the Jews, the Jews reject him, and then Acts we see the gospel going out into the whole world. I think there's some some play between these two scenarios that we could um, we could uh, gain a lot of insight from. And in this situation, Judah would represent the Jewish nation. Mm-hmm. And all of Israel would represent the rest of the world. You know, of course, you know, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king of the Jews, just like David. Uh, Like David's supporters, um, while Absalom ruled, who waited for David to return, that's kind of where we would be in this scenario. And so I have to wonder if this hesitancy of Judah to proclaim support for David uh, doesn't mirror what Paul describes as the partial hardening that's come upon Israel. You know, he talks about how that's until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and that's Mm -hmm. in in Romans. So we know that during this time, the gospel is being preached to the the Gentiles. And at this point, this would be when Israel is learning about David, when they're talking about David and, and deciding to accept him as a king. So... In David's case, reestablishing his position as king was only complete and effective when he was king over all the tribes, just as Jesus' reign will encompass the entire earth. You know, he's not going to settle for a partial victory. And so Mm -hmm. if this is correct, and we see this falling into that that type, that that foreshadowing of, of Jesus in David's life. The story only becomes more interesting as we move forward, especially in verses 16 through 43, but we're, we'll wait to get there. So I, I think that we can see once again how much David foreshadowed what will happen with Jesus' life ministry and his return if we're looking at big picture. But you know there's always those points where types and foreshadowing and metaphors all fall apart. they, they don't present a whole picture they're not supposed to so let's let's not forget that um you know david is definitely going we're going to see some pretty brutal failures even still and i know a lot of people think oh well you know after bathsheba david repents and he gets it right and everything's great no the the man still has problems after this Mm -hmm. point so um but what we find in this story is that David actually, in his failure to be the Messiah, and we've got to remember the terms of the Messiah have already been laid out. We, we should know what to look for when we're talking about the Messiah. When he fails to uphold those ideals, he does irreparable damage to the kingdom, and we're going to talk about uh, how that plays out, but you know, stay tuned. So <laughs> verse 13, And said to Amasa, are you not bone of my, and say to Amasa, are you not bone, my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. So this is a really interesting move on David's part. Amasa was Absalom's general. Amasa was the one who led the military revolt and rebellion. He he was David's nephew, Joab, and Absalom's cousin, and, you know, he was not somebody who passively accepted Absalom moving into Jerusalem. He was an active member of this, and I think we need to remember that if Amasa had had the opportunity, he would have killed David,
1: mm-hmm. okay?
0: Th- this is not somebody that you can just go, oh, well, you know, he got caught up. No, he led it. He was part of the movement. Now, on the surface, this seems like a really crazy mood. But I mean, what king says, I'm going to make the enemy general my personal general, especially whenever he's replacing Joab, Joab who has been with him this entire time. But basically what David's doing here, he's doing two things. Number one, it has the benefit of punishing Joab for defying him when Joab did kill Absalom despite specifically being told, don't do it. So you've got that going on. But it also signals to the rest of the nation that David is willing to forgive and he's willing to restore any of those who were involved in the rebellion if they stop now. Mm -hmm. And so this message of reconciliation, really, it's very striking whenever it's extended first to somebody who was such an active part of the rebellion. And it's not just for people who we're on the fence. So it's kind of a a two two birds with one stone. And you know, later we're going to find out that that David considers this punishment insufficient for what Joab has done and we're we'll get there and we get into kings. But um by by putting Amasa in this place, he's not just reuniting the nation, he's reuniting his family. And this is verified by what's in the next um uh, Next verse, verse 14. He says, And he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. Now, the Hebrew is a little ambiguous. We don't know when it says he swayed, is it referring to David? David swayed all the hearts of Judah because he appointed Amasa, or did Amasa sway the hearts on David's behalf? We we really don't know both. Translations can be supported. Uh, there's traditions that support both views, but the the idea that David needed help to solidify his support in Judah is not far fetched. We've right. already seen that Joab would not have been able to make his threat Absalom would not have been able to uh, have his rebellion if David's hold on the rule in Judah was not already slipping. Right. And so, and I think we need to remember that, uh, you know, where David is at this point, he didn't fight with Joab at Raba. Shimei felt confident enough to curse David and to throw stones at the king. Any other time this would have got him killed. Ahithophel blatantly betrays David and becomes Absalom's counselor, despite having been David's counselor up to this point. Absalom was actually emboldened enough to to think that he could pull off this rebellion, to pull off this coup. And, you know, when Joab comes back and is able to bully David into doing what he thinks is right, we should start to be getting a sense of just how tenuous David's hold on the throne really is. He is not the, the stable, strong leader he once was. And it's very likely that David needed Amasa to to solidify his position with Judah, and basically anyone who supported Absalom, because if they would support Absalom, then they would definitely follow Amasa as Absalom's second in command. Right. So the King this is verse 15. So the king came back to Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king over the Jordan. So Gilgal is pretty close to Jordan. Uh, it, this is the place where Saul was crowned king. and si- it's significant that this is the place where David's reign is reaffirmed. Uh, it simultaneously signals that he's Saul's successor, but it also uh, signals that David might be in trouble because remember, David gets himself in the most trouble when he starts acting like Saul when he mm-hmm. forgets who he is. And unfortunately, David singling out Judah this way and saying, hey, you know, you need to support me actually has some unintended consequences uh, down the road. So we're going to talk about that later. But verse 16, Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet David. So suddenly we see why Shemi back in chapter, I think it was 16, had so many qualifiers and identifiers. The writer doesn't want you to miss, this is the same guy. You mm. need to know without a doubt, this Shemi here in chapter 19 is the same guy who's cursing David. He's the same guy who had the audacity to throw stones at David. And the, he doesn't want you to, to think there's any, cha- you know, any chance for misidentification. So verse 17, and with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. So Shimmy doesn't come alone. And his companions are really interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, Judah, he's coming in with Judah. He's coming with David's tribe and family. He's, it's really strange that he would choose as a Benjaminite to actually show up with this group. And probably the only reason why he felt bold enough to do so is because he knew that not every man in Judah would hate him for challenging David's reign. I mean, after all, how many of them had supported Absalom? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: He has a thousand men from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. So they're, they're with, uh, with Shimmy. they're with Judah we're going to see how this, this alliance between the two tribes actually becomes important. Ziva's with his sons and servants. So he, Ziva, Ziva's an interesting character, and he plays an important part. So he's with Shimei. Uh, We know that he was Saul's servant. He's the man that David had consulted whenever he said, hey, is there anyone left from the house of Saul? This is um, previous in the book. And, and Ziva's the one who said yeah, there's Mephibosheth, there's Jonathan's mm-hmm. son. And so when David brought um, Mephibosheth back, he'd actually made Ziva Mephibosheth's servant and steward over the land. And this is also the guy that when David was fleeing from Absalom, that Ziva had accused Mephibosheth of trying to, to become a part of the revolt in order to reclaim the, the throne for himself and Saul's family. So Ziva, when he had arrived, he had actually shown up with lots of provisions. Now, this is going to be important. And uh, so when Ziva had arrived with the provisions, we also need to remember that David had given Ziva Mephibosheth's lands. Now, Ziva was problematic because the writer and Samuel at that point, and even at this point, we still don't know whether or not to believe him. We we don't know whether Mephibosheth has actually betrayed David or if Ziva has betrayed Mephibosheth. So Ziva and Shimi are linked through Saul because Shimi was a part of the the, um, the tribe of Benjamin. He's one of Saul's cousins. Ziva was one of Saul's servants, probably also from the the tribe of Benjamin, and mm-hmm. the the connection really makes you question the character integrity of both men because neither man has been been shown in just a great light and obviously you know shimmy cursing david so we're supposed to be questioning their intentions and sincerity what are these two up to but what we're really beginning to see is the schism that will later divide israel where judah and benjamin become uh, one side of the, the equation and then The rest of the 10 tribes become the other sides known as the Northern and Southern kingdoms or Judah and Israel. And so we're, we're told that these two tribes specifically are there when David's reign is reaffirmed and everyone else is kind of unimportant in this moment. David had, whenever he singled out Judah and brings them in and then Shimei brings in Benjamin with, with Ziva We have this really kind of uneasy alliance that is beginning to form, and it's going to set that fault line for where the nation is going to fracture. So we're going to talk about how we get there. But verse 18, And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei the son of Gera fell down before the king as he is about to cross the Jordan. So what we're getting ready to go into is an approximate uh, retelling of David's flight from Jerusalem. So if you remember the flight from Jerusalem, he encounters Shimei Ben-Gera, Shimei, the son of uh, Gera, who's cursing David, but then he runs into Ziva who accuses um, Mephibosheth. And then he runs into Barzillai and others who bring him provision. Well, this time he's going to run into Shimei again, instead of accusation. Now we're going to have blessing and praise. And where uh, Ziva had accused Mephibosheth, now Mephibosheth is going to accuse Ziva. And then Barzillai is not going to join with David. He's actually going to part ways with David. So we've got this kind of loose retelling in reverse. Gotcha. Yeah. So basically what was undone is being redone. What had been destroyed is being rebuilt. So verse 19 And said to the king, let not my Lord be guilty or uh, hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day of my Lord left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day and the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord, your king. Okay, so anyone with half a brain is suspicious of anyone who talks like this. Okay, Just, just know this up front. And you know, Shimmy had cursed David when it appeared David had lost power. Now that David is coming back into power, now Shimmy's all kissing his butt. And David has done nothing to rectify the situation or the circumstances that da- that Shimmy had accused him of. Right. Shimmy said, you know, you're a man of blood because you killed the house of Saul. David had couldn't fix that. Well, number one, David didn't do that, but The fact that Shimmy had done, I mean, sorry, that David had not even addressed any of uh, Shimmy's uh, charges, hadn't Mm. proven himself innocent, hadn't tried to vindicate himself. I mean, he he just let Shimmy go. And now Shimmy suddenly had this change of heart. It's suspicious. And so the only thing that that has changed in this whole situation is now David's reclaiming the throne. Mm -hmm. And Another reason why this is suspicious is Shimei exaggerates who he represents. He doesn't say, you know, from the house of Benjamin. He says from the house of Joseph. Now, this is not a mistake. This house of Joseph is a term that includes Benjamin, and then the two half-tribes, and, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And yeah. so he's saying, I, I have more influence than just Benjamin. I, I, I encompass both, all three of these tribes. And so this is the reason why you need to, to accept me because I bring the support of the three of the tribes, not just one.
1: Mm.
0: And there's also kind of a play. It, it's a play on, on traditional and, and cultural circumstances. You have to remember back in Genesis, and you can go back and listen to our episodes on this, Judah was Joseph's protector whenever they threatened to kill joseph Ju- judah was the one who says you know it doesn't gain us anything to kill our brother let's sell him into slavery here put him in this pit and there's a suggestion that's with the idea that judah would go back and save him later but then mm-hmm. he was sold into slavery when um they go down to jerusalem oh uh, no, sorry jerusalem, when they go down to egypt to do the trade judah's the one who says if benjamin doesn't return safely take my life. I'm willing to take his place. You So Judah is the one who actually takes responsibility. He's the first guy in the whole Bible to repent. And we talked about that with uh, the Judah and Tamar episode. Sure. But Judah was the one who took responsibility for what happened to Joseph. He was the one who understood that they had messed up. So basically Shemi's playing on that. As a member of Judah you have to protect me because I'm the little brother. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm the one who, if I die, the father's heart dies. It's this death to the father. So there, there's no, um, there's kind of a a play on these traditional obligations. And I think if you're a part of a large family, that shouldn't be surprising. There's certain things that like, these are your roles. This is what you do. And you know, you, you don't get to escape them. And so Shimmy, Jimmy wants to bring up this traditional relationship. And uh, so I, he, he's smart. He, he, he's really smart. But the, the other and probably the most brilliant thing about this is it doesn't give David an out. The only reason David had retained kingship to begin with was because he confessed. He admitted he did wrong. He appealed to God's mercy. And he repented of his violence against Bathsheba and Uriah. Mm-hmm. So now if David responds with anything less than mercy and compassion, he's basically abdicated his position as God's representative on this earth. Sure. Which is what the role of the king is to be. And so David can't do anything. His hands are are tied because and Shimmy probably knows this. He seems like the kind of a guy who who's going to keep up on all the 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 royal scuttlebutt, you know, he, he probably uh, pays attention to the National Enquirer and all that good stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, anyway, verse 21, Abishai, the son of Zuria answered, shall not Shimmy be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed. Now, if you remember back to when we met Shimmy, Abishai was present then. And his, his first thought was, let's go down and cut off his head. That's what he wanted to do. And, you know, we've talked about before, you shouldn't be surprised. Almost every time Abishai shows up, he wants to kill someone. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, Abishai doesn't want to kill people without reason. Everyone Abishai wants to kill, there's a reason to want them dead, at least in this culture and context. In the mind of this ancient warrior, it's appropriate that the people he wants to kill die. So the first time we met him in 1 Samuel 26. This is when David spared Saul's life. And Abishai wanted to kill, kill Saul. Why? Mm-hmm. Because David was the proper king. Abishai believed that. In 2 Samuel 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3, he wants to kill Abner. Why? Because Abner is still supporting the house of Saul. And there is the one little matter where, you know, Abner had killed Abishai's brother. And um, we talked about why that was not appropriate for Abishai to want to uh, take revenge. But Joab did wind up killing Abner over that. And now in both encounters with Shimmy, his first response is killing. And, you know, as far as political expectations and expediency, Abishai's attitude is right and proper for this time. If you got a problem with somebody who's challenging the leadership, take him out. We talked about this just a few minutes ago. This is the right thing to do. Don't let rebellion foment within your kingdom. That's just wrong. And and what's really interesting is Abishai is not stupid. He actually took a page from David. You could tell he's been listening. He says, Shimei needs to be killed. Why? Because he has cursed God's anointed. Why did David tell Abishai he couldn't kill Saul? Because Saul was God's anointed. And so this is the re- so Abishai knows, hey, David has given valid reason for why I should be able to do this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So David's response is, is the what's interesting here. Abishai is stereotypical. He's exactly what we should expect. But David says, this is verse 22a says but um what have I do what have I to do with you you sons of Zuria that you that You should this day be as an adversary to me. So first, it's interesting that David uses the plural here. He doesn't use son. He's talking to Abishai. But most commentators believe that David is using this moment to kind of include Joab in this. Because remember, Abishai and Joab are brothers. And so, you know, David's basically saying, y'all have a tendency to overstep bounds. You have a tendency to to do what you think is right. You don't pay attention to me he he's He's including both of them and making it a family trait, not just a um you're out of line this one time. this is just ingrained in your nature now. The second thing that's interesting um with this response is the wording here, and the wording is why are you an adversary to me? Now, if you know any Hebrew and you've been hanging around for Hebrew speakers for a while, you, you should be able to guess what the root word there for adversary is. I know, you know, it.
2: Is it Satan?
0: Very good. Very good. (laughs) And if you listen, I mean, I'm not saying there's like specific or uh, identical connections between these two passages, but if you listen to these, conversations, there's that same tone that you find in Job, where the, you know, Satan comes the Satan comes in with the sons of God. And, you know, the charges that Abishai brings against Saul and against Shemi and against Abner even, they're justified. They they are completely within the keeping and the bounds and the propriety of this day. This is why his response isn't it isn't all that interesting because this is appropriate, but the Messiah, the David, the the King, he's the one that steps up and says, "Wait a minute, there's a problem. There there's, there needs to be mercy. There needs to be compassion." And David's reasoning is just as fascinating as, um, for his reasoning for mercy is just as fascinating as his reasoning for accusing Abishai of being out of line. Verse twenty two b says shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day day? for do I not know that I am this day the king over Israel? So the reason why people don't die isn't because they're without guilt. It's because of the character and the integrity of the king.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It's no one's going to die because I'm king. Yeah. Shimmy, Shimmy's guilty. There's no question of that. Um, Because I'm the king and because I have received grace and mercy and compassion, now I have to extend it. So the David is the one who breaks character. He's the one who who defies the cultural constructs. And he's the one who who does something so wholly unexpected. And I think that's a really interesting play because if we think about it, you know, we have an accuser, and the accuser Comes at us with things that are often valid. You know, we have sinned. We have made horrible decisions. We've done things that have gone against God. We we've cursed God. We've thrown rocks at Him, metaphorically speaking. But our fate isn't determined by our guilt, or even Mm -hmm. the charges of the accuser. What's our fate determined by? By the character and the integrity of our Messiah, of our Anointed One, of our King. Mm -hmm. And, And so, to me, that's exciting because this is a really great foreshadowing and a, a, that type is totally appropriate here in this moment mm-hmm. a, and I don't think we're having to reach too far for it
2: no and and something else and this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier is when you have is all Israel is you know kind of hanging out hiding because they're kind of going oh well he was willing to kill his own son what's he going to do to us mm-hmm. I mean, we kind of have a, a similar parallel with the a lot of the misconceptions about God in our current culture, mm-hmm. and probably just about every culture who's ever heard about the crucifixion. I mean, the you know they they go, oh well, he killed his own son. What chance do I have? Kind right. of this this idea. What a terrible person! But of course, you know it doesn't function the same way, because, right? <laughs> you know it's it's the Trinity. It's the same God, um, which is you know again mind blowing, but. It's not just some, like, it's not exactly the same, you know, one-to-one, but it's, it's kind of that same deal of, like, mistaking God's character because of misunderstanding uh, the, the scenario. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and, and I hadn't thought about this, but, you know, when, when David says, you know, what if this to do with you, sons of Zuriah, Uh Joab was, was an accuser of Absalom. And and I do I do think there's some kind of parallel here with within the accusers, and we're talking about um, how Satan talked with Jesus even in the temptation. And I think you, things can get real muddy, and we want to be careful with metaphors. But there there's this really interesting idea that the the accuser can only go as far as the king lets him that the accuser it doesn't matter what they say even if they're right if the king stands up on our behalf then we're justified we're 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 accepted back into the kingdom and that's what david's doing here with shimei he's accepting him back into the kingdom he he's bringing him back under his rule and we forget in our in our culture today that god is a god of love and mercy even the old testament god which i know just blows people's minds but the idea that this love and mercy has room for even the guilty and the truly guilty, and that it is a matter of repentance and it is a matter of confession and, and respecting God's rule. That's mm-hmm. what brings you back into the community. That's what has always brought people back into the community of faith. Can you respect God's rule? And, you know, we, we have this tendency to think that, oh, well, we don't have to do anything as Christians anymore. You know, we, how many times we, Jesus paid it all? And it, mm-hmm. of course, I mean, and I agree with that. We we don't add anything to our salvation. We cannot do anything to earn our salvation. Let's let's make that very clear. But whenever we decide to become part of that community of faith and not just assent to the fact that Jesus is God and Jesus can and does save, and we, we want to engage that relationship, now we have to submit to the rule. And, and so there, there's this really weird... I got to talk with uh, Ruth Whiteford uh, about her paper she presented to SBL. It was a lot of fun brainstorming things. But we were talking about how, you know, sometimes the the substance of of salvation is not conditional, but sometimes the Mm -hmm. form looks very, uh, conditional. And so we we have to kind of find that that space between motives and motivation, where motives kind of has that that. Um, dark kind of negative connotation in our culture and motivation has a more positive. Am I motivated to serve God because he loves me or do I have motives? Am I trying to buy him off? Am I trying to pay him off? There, there, there's a difference. And the form doesn't always tell you what the difference is because the difference is in the substance of the heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we can't really say, you know, who's doing it right and who's doing it wrong, other than ourselves. Only God can see the heart. But uh, I just want to finish out this one little uh thing. And I know I'm gonna go over it just a minute, but I, I think it's no, we're good totally that, fine. Yeah. So verse 23, the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him a oath. Now David's words echo God's words through Nathan back in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. whenever Nathan says, you shall not die. And this was after David's confession that he had sinned and that he, he wanted to repent. Now, um, the writer does this very intentionally. We've already talked about what a great writer he is. He's reminding us this really kicked off and started to come to a head with David and Bathsheba. And all of this, everything that's happened is a fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy and God's judgment against David. Now, we need to look at and remember, yes, condemnation is removed for those who repent. Consequences aren't. And this is a consequence Mm -hmm. of David's actions. And as we, we go into this next chapter and the next part of the chapter, we need to be remembering that. Uh, these, the words of Nathan, we need to be thinking about that prophecy because there's a reason the writer has chosen to take our minds back to this point in the book. And it's so that we read everything that proceeds from here through the lens of what David has done up to this point. And this is Mm -hmm. very important. And if you're going to prepare for next week, Go back and read the story of Mephibosheth and Ziva. Go back and read the story of Hanun and Akash. Those are right before uh, David Bathsheba's story. And that's really going to set the stage. And we're going to see how this is not just the the consequences of one or two bad decisions. This is the consequences of a heart that keeps getting out of alignment with God. Mm-hmm. And so... That's the the point. And I I think people forget that the point really is about bringing us back into alignment with God. And Mm -hmm. that's what the rules are about. That's what all the teachings are about. It's not to make you feel bad. It's not to make you think you're a horrible person. It's to say, hey, these are the things that are necessary to have a good relationship and how you honor God in a way that's completely appropriate. So um, I had the do not disturb. But it still decided to ring. So no, it's all right. <laughs> anyway, I think that's a good place to stop because then Mephibosheth is going to show up again.
2: Mm-hmm. And then yeah, I... I think we definitely need to get in, yeah, be able to <laughs> devote some time to that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So um let yeah. Well we'll go ahead and, and break there. And everyone, uh, thanks for joining us. We're we're hoping you're uh having a good time. Hope you uh for those of you who did celebrate Hanukkah, hope you had a good one. Um yeah, you know, we like to do it it's fun um, there's food involved chocolate there's there, well there's yeah we haven't even got any uh we haven't really got any guilt. of course we can't even get any i don't know the the stuff we always get at target's not very good um lenders so just, come in
0: shiny wrappers we're good what's that <laughs> i said lender comes in shiny wrappers so we're good
2: yes yeah we can <laughs> we can substitute some of those um but uh that being said, uh, if you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up, Raven Creek SC, on all the social media. RavenCreeksc.com is the website. And uh, we'll be glad to, to hear what you have to say and uh, respond to feedback as we can. And uh, in the meantime, I guess uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast a raven creek social club production don't
1: forget to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram if you like what you've heard please write
2: us a review on itunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash raven sc as always thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week